Matthew 13, starting in verse 24. Another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is likened to a man which sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares also. So the servants of the householder came and said unto him, Sir, didst thou now sow good seed in the field? From whence then hath it tares? He said unto them, An enemy hath done this. The servant said unto him, Wilt thou then let we go and gather them up? But he said, Nay, lest while ye gather up the tares, ye root up also the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And in the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, Gather ye together the, first the tares, and bind them in bundles to burn them. But gather the wheat into my barn. Another parable put, forth, put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is likened to a grain of mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which, in, which indeed is the least of all seeds. But when it is grown, it is the greatest among herbs, and becometh a tree, so that the birds of the air come and lodge in the branches. Another parable spake he unto them, The kingdom of heaven is likened to leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal, till the whole was leavened. All these th things spake Jesus unto the multitude in parables, and without a parable spake he not unto them, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet, saying, I will open my mouth in parables, I will utter things which have been kept secret from the foundations of the world. Then Jesus said unto the multitude, Then Jesus sent the multitude away, and went to the house, and his disciples came unto him, saying, Declare unto us the parable of the tares of the field. He answered and said unto them, He that soweth the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seed are the children of the kingdom. But the tares are the children of the wicked one. The enemy that sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the world, and the reapers are the angels. As therefore the tares are gathered and burnt in the fire, so shall it be in the end of this world. The Son of Man shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather out, the king, gather out of his kingdom all things that offend him, them, which do iniquity, and shall cast them into a furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. Who hath ears to hear, let him hear. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a treasure hidden in a field, the which, when the man hath found it, or found, he hideth, and for joy thereof goeth and sell all that he hath, and buy that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a merchant man seeking goodly pearls, who, when he hath found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he hath, and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a net that is cast into the sea, and gathered of every kind, which, when it was full, they drew it to shore, and set down, and gathered the good into vessels, but cast the bad away. So shall it be at the end of the world. The angels shall come forth, and sever the wicked from among the just, and shall cast them into the furnace of fire. There shall be welling and gnashing of teeth. God said unto them, Hath ye understood all these things? And they said unto him, Yea, yea, Lord. Then said he unto them, Therefore every scribe which is instructed unto the kingdom of heaven is like unto a man 
that is an householder, which bringeth forth out of his treasure things new and old. And it came to pass that when Jesus had finished these parables, he departed thence. And when he had come into his own country, he taught them in the synagogues, insomuch that they were astonished and said, Whence hath this man this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And his brethren, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, and his sisters, are they not all with us? Whence then hath this man all these things? And they were offended in him. But Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not without honor, save in his own country or in his own house. And he did not many mighty works there because of their unbelief. You may be seated. Good morning. Anyone here have have something that has been passed down maybe from your mother, your grandmother, your great-grandmother perhaps, maybe even further back than just a couple, two or three generations. Something that you have acquired, something that's been given to you that you value greatly. Maybe it's a quilt that a grandmother had patched together. Maybe it's an old set of dishes that have been left behind and passed down. Maybe it's a, an old phonograph. And for those of you that don't know what a phonograph is, that's code for a record player. I know you don't know what that is. Last year when my mother's side of the family got together, they did something that was a little different. And I, it was a joy to, to, to participate in it. They had, uh, my mom and my aunt had gotten together, wrapped up several gifts, unbeknownst to all of us who gathered, and had some numbers, and we all, in an orderly fashion, selected a gift. And come to find out after we opened the, the gifts, that all of the gifts that were opened were, were gifts that belonged to um, my my mom's mom or my mom's grandmother. Um, they were, a lot of them were, were old dishes or old plates. And, and it, was, it was a special time just to think about these belong to my mom's mom, my mom's grandmother. These were the dishes that, that she used and this is what they used in their home. And It was a joy to consider that. And these items just seemed more special. They were items of great value to me, having been handed down a few generations. You know, I was also considering and thinking in light of the text how, how much our family enjoys going to antique shops. Anybody like to go to antique shops? Get an opportunity? And you know, as a general rule, we found that <clears throat> the older something is, the better, oftentimes, the quality. Some of that furniture, it just seems to be built better. 
The items in general seem to be better. And the books just seem to read better. You know, there's something about an old book. I know we have a few book lovers here this morning that enjoy good books. Enjoy finding good books. You know, for me, there's, there's not a whole lot that beats, you know, those, the smell of the, the, the pages, the, those old dust jackets that are still on the book, that vintage first edition copy of that wonderfully written God-centered children's book. There are some out there. Or, or perhaps a late, teen, late 1800s, I have a, a late 1800 copy of, of Thayer's Greek Lexicon. Now some of you are going, ah, that's, what's, what's the big deal about that? It's exciting to me. It is, it's exciting. It's a wonderful thing to be able to open it up. You know, there's something about going into an antique shop. I never know what I might come across. And, 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 and the items that I find they become valuable. Not necessarily for my own use or my own benefit, but for the joy of one day, perhaps, Lord willing, being able to pass it along to our children. and Lord willing, they'd be able to pass it on to their children. You know, as great as some of those things might be in the antique shop, as great, Is that cherished treasure that you might have in your own home? They all, every single one of them, pale in comparison to the treasure spoken of this morning in the text. If you are in Christ Jesus today, you probably already know of whom I speak. If you are not in Christ Jesus today, perhaps you're here because it's that time of year to be in the Lord's house. Being in a church building around Christmas is part of your tradition. You may be here because of the holiday. There are many, by the way, who are in the Lord's house because of the holiday. If this does apply to you, I'd like to just try to get your attention here for just one moment. All the stuff in the world, all the gifts, all the great bargains, all the unbeatably low prices... All the Black Fridays. Or now we've got the Cyber Mondays, don't we? All the big deals. None of these things compare to what is offered to you in the person of Jesus Christ. There is no one, there is nothing greater than the treasure available to you, available to you, even yet today, in the person of Jesus Christ.
Now, before you simply say, okay, and kind of a, a mental assent to, yeah, okay, I got, I got what you're saying, and you move on to your next scheduled event later this week, I'd like to unpack this text as God gives me grace to do so, and I'd like to show you the folly and the, and the foolishness of cherishing anything else besides the king and his kingdom rule in your life. I'd like you to see the joy that is found in Christ. And conversely, the emptiness that comes when Christ and his rule is absent in your life. Look at Matthew 13, verse 44. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid, and for joy over it. He goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Church, is there anything striking about the way this text begins in verse 44? Anything initially? I'll give you a hint. Look at the first word. Again. Implies what? Implies Jesus has already been teaching previous to this point. What is the subject of his teaching? The kingdom of heaven. Why is he teaching on the kingdom of heaven? Contextually, Matthew's gospel is written to put emphasis upon Jesus as king, Jesus as ruler, Jesus as Messiah, or elsewhere in Matthew we see son of David. As you read the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, you can't miss Matthew's emphasis upon Jesus as king of the kingdom. The instructions from Jesus presented in Matthew are instructions from the king. And he's issuing proper marching orders for his subjects. Contextually, it's also important. There's so many wonderful contextual things here in this. Don't have time this morning to bring out all of them, but there are many wonderful contextual truths here that help us in the reading of Matthew 13, 44 through 46. But look at verse 36. And Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house. And his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. Now there's two things right here that I want you to see contextually. First, if Jesus had the multitude sent away and he went into the house... Where was he before this? Well, you back up to the beginning of chapter 13. You see in verse 1 and 2, on the same day, on the same day, which is going to take you backward even more into Matthew 12, okay? But on the same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the sea, and great multitudes were gathered together to him, so that he got into a boat and sat. 
and the whole multitude stood on the shore. So he had been teaching on a boat. And the people were gathered around the shore to listen to his teaching. Second thing I would like you to get here is that his disciples in Matthew 13, 36, his disciples ask him a question. They ask him a question upon coming to the house. Explain to us the parable of the tares and of the field. Now, what follows in verses 36 through 43 then is an explanation to their question. And you might be inclined to ask, and I hope you do. I hope when you read the text, you ask questions. You might be inclined to ask another question right here. Why then is there another series of parabolic teachings after Jesus explains the parable of the tares? That is, church, a good question. That's a good question. Perhaps Jesus knows how to sufficiently explain the parable. See, we read this and we think he's done explaining the parable at the end of verse 43. On the surface, it appears as though he is done explaining the parable of the tares in verse 43. But is he? Some have said that what follows in verses 44 to 52 happens on another occasion. I tend to think not, and here's why. Look at Matthew 13, verse 51. Jesus said to them, this is after the parable of the net, Have you understood all these things? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Why does Jesus ask such a question? Have you understood all these things? I believe it stems back to verse 36. They asked, explain to us the parable, what this means of the tares and field. So is it not instructive for us to consider that perhaps his ways, here's the Isaiah 55 idea, principle, concept. Is it not that what we're reading here, we see His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts because we look at it and we go, that is a pretty sufficient explanation in 36 to 43. It could have been done. Is it possible then when you consider the context that verses 44, 45, and 46, they sit right in the midst of Jesus' explanation to his disciples. The question then becomes, why these two parables? How do these two parables contribute to the explanation Jesus gives to his disciples? What is the connection, if any, to the parable of the tares? And is there any other connection with the parables that follow, that of the net and the householder? See, these are questions that need to be asked of the text. Important contextual questions. Contextually, we could spend much time talking about the genre of teaching right here in Matthew 13. The parable. The parable. We could explore the nature of parabolic teaching in the life of Christ. Why the use of such parables? For starters, it may be good for you just to jot down Matthew 13, 10 through 17. And also Matthew 13, verses 34 and 35. Jesus, in Matthew 13, does give some idea, some definition, some handhold on why parables? 
He gives the answers in this chapter. In fact, Matthew 13, verse 34, Jesus says, All these things Jesus spoke to the multitude in parables. And without a parable, he did not speak to them. Well, if you read Matthew's gospel, you you come to see that Jesus is teaching starts to turn a corner right here in Matthew 13. This is a hinge point in the gospel, almost the halfway point in the book of Matthew. Persecution is brewing. Plotting has already begun. Matthew 12, verse 14 tells us this. Then the Pharisees, it says, went out, and they plotted against him how they might destroy him. This is following the healing of the man on the Sabbath. You might remember the story. Matthew's gospel also includes the account of the Magi from the east who traveled to visit and worship this newborn king. You see, Matthew's gospel brings out the idea, emphasizes the idea of Jesus as king. And we have these Magi from the east who come to worship this newborn king. And you know, Herod, of course, is troubled over this news because Herod being the earthly king at the time, he doesn't like the idea of two kings. He wants to eliminate any and all rivals. And so after he finds out that the Magi have returned home a different route, Herod makes the call to eliminate any other king. Matthew 2, verse 16. And perhaps, perhaps, We fail to remember this part of the arrival of Christ and the aftermath of Christ's birth. Herod sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts from two years old and under. Matthew's gospel includes the words of John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Matthew 3, 1 and 2. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven, this theme that's being addressed right here in Matthew 13. In fact, Matthew's gospel includes the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 4. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew's gospel includes the sermon from the king in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And early on puts forward the reward of the kingdom of heaven for those who are poor in spirit, for those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Matthew includes the instruction from Jesus upon sending out his disciples into the harvest field in Matthew 10, verse 7. And as you go, preach, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. See, there's so much context that surrounds what we're talking about here this morning in 44, 45, and 46 of Matthew 13. In church context, it, it enriches, it enlivens, it enhances the word of God, church. It's profitable for your soul. And it's wonderful to see these truths and to see how the parts all fit and connect together. There's so many points to see. And it's a joy to see the connect points, isn't it? So, what now of the immediate text? What is the point 
of Jesus' teaching in these two parables? And, and what have they to do with the kingdom of heaven? What do these words have to say to you today? What connect do they have with the arrival and celebration of Christ's birth? How might you carry these three verses with you throughout the week and even into the new year? Well, verse 44 is the first of two parables in our main text, known as the parable of the hidden treasure. It likens one thing to another. Jesus' teaching is intended to draw out truth in the midst of everyday activity, everyday living. The pattern in the text is this. The kingdom of heaven is like, or in the original it's worded this way, like or compared to is the kingdom of heaven. The first word in the original text is that word like or compared. The simile. It's placed first in the sentence in the original text. I believe for emphasis. It stands up so that we take notice of it in the text. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. What is instructive for us is what Jesus in his perfect wisdom decides to include in the parable and what he opts not to include in this parable. Keep in mind, this is a parable that is one verse in length. That's not very long. One verse. For instance... We're not told how much, uh, a whole lot about this treasure. We're not told a whole lot about it. We're not told how much the treasure is. We're not told how the man found the treasure. We're not given any explanation in verse 44 as to why the man, upon finding the treasure, decided to hide it, decided to cover it back up in the ground. We're not told the name of the owner of the field. There are, there are many details that are left out right here in this particular parable. And just a side note, in case any of you are disputing the perceived unethical situation in this text. Anybody? Anybody read this parable and scratch their head and go, man, that just doesn't seem right. Huh? Good, I'm, I wasn't the only one. Good. Again, that's good as you read it. You're asking questions of the text. Well, to try and be helpful, to try and unlock what may be locked there in some of your minds, the question arises when you read that, verse 44, why doesn't the man inform the owner of the treasure that's hidden in the field? Good question. I mean, isn't this guy acting unethically here? It's important to see what Jesus is teaching. It's important to see what his purpose is, not only in this particular parable, but what is the context for such a parable? 
If Jesus is concerned about the man's ethics, if that was the main point of his teaching, I'm sure there would have been more on the subject. In fact, Jewish law did have some words to speak about one who finds something belonging to another. You can read a little bit about that in Deuteronomy 22, 1 through 4. There were occasions, it seems, where someone who found something, they would have legal rights to it. If it was found that the previous owner had died and passed on and this was just hidden, it's been hidden for years. But I'd like to propose that the man spoken of in this parable was acting in an ethical manner. I mean, let's think about it. Remember, Jesus is teaching a parable. Okay? When he's teaching a parable in particular, he is, he is driving at, aiming at, a truth. Usually a truth. A pointed truth. He's arriving at a truth. This man could have just taken the treasure. Could have carried, it, carried on his business. Could have just taken that and gone on his way. The fact that he bought the field containing the treasure is instructive, church. And this gets close, closer, I believe, to the point of the teaching in verse 44. Not only did he buy the field... But I want you to see the precursor to buying the field. First, first precursor. The text says, with joy over it. This treasure delighted him. It was not a burden. It was a genuine joy. The treasure made his heart skip a bit faster. He had a little bit more life in his step as he anticipated the purchase of the field containing, containing this all-satisfying treasure. And the text also tells us that he sells all that he has. This, oh, this is big. He sells all that he has. This ought to be highlighted, underlined, asterisk. He sells all that he has to purchase the treasure, the field. If the man truly was acting unethically, would he be willing... Would you be willing to forfeit all things for the sake of the field? Would you be willing to do that? He sells everything. Again, we don't know how much the man had. We're not told how much he sold away to purchase the field. But the point starts to come into focus at the end of the verse. And I believe the gentleman named Jim Elliot, captures the essence of Jesus' teaching right here when he says, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Right on point with the idea here. You see, the treasure found by the man is, literally speaking, it's going to perish, that treasure. 
It's an earthly treasure. It's going to perish. But the principal teaching here, the comparison is being made, you see, between the kingdom of heaven and this treasure hidden in a field. As you consider the kingdom of heaven and the spiritual implications, the heart implications being addressed by the king, the point, I believe, is clear. The value of the kingdom of heaven is worth it all. It's worth everything. Jesus' teaching is placing highest value on the kingdom of heaven. At the core of this kingdom rule is the one who stands in their midst, the one who is teaching, the king himself, the one who is at hand, the one who has drawn near. Praise the Lord for Emmanuel, God with us. You see, the teaching about the kingdom of heaven wasn't some vague concept of the future, although it does, yes, include future concept, no doubt. But Jesus is concerned. He's concerned that men see the present aspect of God's rule and reign on their lives as well. He's concerned with hearts directed and channeled under the the king's reign right now. The kingdom of heaven is to be sought above all. Jesus, the king of the kingdom, is worth it all, church. Let me ask you. Is he worth it all to you? At a time of year when everyone is scurrying around to find just the right gift. Is it possible that in all of the scurrying, you've forgotten what this text says? Is it possible that the things of the world have gained your heart's attention over and, abo- over and above the treasure you profess and proclaim in Christ. Matthew 16, 24, Jesus says to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Matthew 19, 20 through 22, the young man, the rich young man, remember that story? Says to Jesus, all these things I've kept from my youth, what what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you want to be perfect, go, sell what you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. The point here, hear me please, the point here is not that you leave this place and you go sell all your possessions. That's not the point. the one thing that this rich young man lacked. There's a reason, by the way, he's referred to as a rich young man. That is at the heart of what the teaching is. 
his money was a snare. He lacked heart obedience to the Lord. I've done this, I've done this, I've done this. One thing you lack. What's the result of what Jesus tells this man? The text says that he walked away sad. Why? Because he had a lot of money and he wasn't willing to get rid of the money. The very thing Jesus called him to get rid of. The very thing Jesus knew was a stumbling block for this man. What's the stumbling block for you this morning? It might be riches. Maybe it is. But perhaps it's something else. What is it? You know. I encourage you to write it down. What is it? Offer it to the Lord. See, Kingdom Living Church requires sacrifice. Sacrifice. We live in a society today that, that we don't appreciate sacrifice. We don't serving someone else. You know, in the game of baseball, there's this idea of a sacrifice bunt. It's kind of an interesting concept. Or a sacrifice fly. But I, I refer to the sacrifice bunt. You got a guy on first base, and the coach wants to get that guy from first to second. In order to get him first and second, they got the signal. There's this, there's this coach on third, and he's doing all these crazy signals on the side. And he has his player to bunt. With the understanding that he's about to bunt the ball, knowing he's probably going to get out. But the joy of it all is that while he is going to be out at first, the guy who was at first running the second is going to be saved. He's sacrificing himself and out in the game to get the guy from first to second. Trivial example, I realize. Nevertheless, an example. As we think about kingdom living and the requirement of kingdom living, it requires, church, that we sacrifice. It requires a heart of obedience to the king. Kingdom living requires an allegiance to the one who, we talked about this last week, the one who transferred us out of darkness, this kingdom of darkness, has brought us into this wonderful kingdom of the son of his love. This kingdom of light. You see, the man in Matthew 13, 44, sells all that he has in order to buy the field. And in that field lies the precious treasure Notice this, the man doesn't seem to be looking for a treasure. Did you, did you see that? He doesn't seem to be looking for a treasure. He finds the treasure, but I don't get the idea as I'm reading the text that he was actively seeking the treasure out. Oh, and as I was reading this and thinking about this, I, it just... I stopped on this point, and this was, um, you know, each one of you here, I'm convinced, know someone who is far from the Lord. This someone is not looking currently, hasn't been looking for some time perhaps, hasn't been looking for the treasure of Jesus Christ. 
But praise the Lord that he works in this manner as well. You see, this king that I serve, this king can orchestrate things in such a way to open blind eyes, to open deaf ears, to hear. You might know someone who seemingly is distant from the things of God, someone who just bristles upon entering, the thought of entering, in in a conversation about Christ. And yet, I see here an opening in the text which prompts me to praise the Lord for such people. Because you see, what is impossible with man is possible with this God whom we serve. In fact, all things are possible with God, amen? All things. So, Don't give up praying for those brothers and sisters, those aunts and uncles. Some of you may have a father or a mother who's far from the Lord. By God's grace and in God's sovereign, perfect timing, they too, they too might just stumble over the treasure. And like the man in this text, they too might arrive at a point by the grace of God. That's how it happens. If they too rid themselves of everything for the sake of the treasure, for the sake of the person of Jesus, for the sake of this king of kings. I want you to keep verse 44 in mind as we look at the next parable in 45 and 46. Look at 45 and 46. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls who, when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Now this is commonly referred to as the parable of the pearl of great price. It does share some commonality with the previous parable, no doubt about it. But it also stands, I believe, on its own in a very unique way as well. The teaching here addresses another way of life picture. Here we're introduced to a merchant man. The original text says, a merchant man. That's who we're talking about here. One who bought and sold goods. Common in the day, in particular... It's important to note that this man bought and sold pearls. Pearls were highly valued in the day. They were extremely costly and viewed as somewhat of an icon of wealth to those who possessed them. The merchant would travel around buying and selling his goods and Made a living at this, much like a fisherman did with his fish, much like a farmer did with his crops. What Jesus is submitting here in his teaching is yet another way of life scenario, which the listener would have understood. I want you to see the contrast between the man who bought the field and the merchant who bought the one pearl. In verse 45... The text says that this merchant was a seeking merchant. Notice that, underline it if you need to. Verse 45, kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls. He's seeking beautiful pearls. 
Keyword there is seeking. He's looking for pearls to add to his collection. In Jesus' teaching, the merchant finds one pearl in particular. Notice the description of this pearl. The text says that this pearl was of great price. Of great price. Palatumon is the word. It, it pertains to being very high on a monetary scale, very precious, very valuable. It's the same word that's used in regard to the precious ointment in Matthew 26, verse 7. It's the same word that's used in 1 Peter, verse 7, of faith, which is more precious than gold. Now, as you consider the merchant, the businessman, we would say in modern day lingo, I'd want you to consider the approach that many take. Ever heard the word diversify? You know, in today's economy, this phrase, diversified portfolio, sought out, isn't it? To, to put everything in, in one bucket just, just seems to be contrary to the way things are done today. And yet, once again, is this what Jesus is aiming at in the text? Is this not seemingly the target of his teaching? Doesn't his kingdom operate differently from that of the world? Should it surprise us to see that Jesus teaches a parable that goes against the way of the world? seems silly, perhaps, from a merchant man's perspective to sell all his product, in fact, everything he had for one pearl of great price. Why would he do such a thing? That's not good business sense. see, what sounds like foolishness from a worldly perspective is the wisest thing you could do, spiritually speaking. And, you know, I was thinking about this, and I, I, I thought about, you know, is, there seems to be something here as well about the priorities put forth in the world and the priorities in Christ's kingdom. The things of earth, the hymn says, will go, go strangely, what? Dim. In the light of his glory and grace. Are not the things that are temporary going to pass away? And are not the eternal things of great value, of supreme value to Jesus? You know, there are some today, church, who are seeking a diversified portfolio, spiritually speaking. Did you know that? You ever encountered those people? They, they want to please people by saying all the right things. They desire to bring God into the picture. Oftentimes that's a God of their own making, not the God of the scriptures. And they might be okay, in fact, with 
portions of Buddhism, Mormonism, Islam. These kinds of folks participate in what's called syncretism. You ever heard that word, syncretism? It's this combination, it's it's a bringing together of different beliefs, the merging together of beliefs. It's almost like a smorgasbord. Just pick and choose what you want, all these different ones. Church, instead of saying, on Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. The alternatives many today are opting for. One alternative is to abandon Christ altogether. The other is to bring Christ into the circle of beliefs that one already has. I've got this and this and this and this. Oh, Christ. Oh, come on in. I'll add him. Oh, this is good. I've got a diversification. The world would tell you that. I mean, you surely can't believe what the Bible says about Jesus being the Son of God. Really? I mean, that, that account in, about Jesus being born of a virgin named Mary, you, you, you don't buy into that, do you? Or that resurrection account, you don't believe that for a second, do you? You see, it's interesting how many are willing to take bits and pieces of God. And I use that word intentionally here, God. But oftentimes fall short of mentioning anything about Jesus at all. You ever notice that? Why? Here's why. Jesus offends. Jesus is himself, according to the text, he is a stumbling block. Jesus, according to the scripture, divides. We don't like that. Our culture around us doesn't like that. The word that we like instead is simply to tolerate everyone so that everyone can just feel good about everyone. Our world does not care for those exclusive truth claims given to us in the book of John. First and foremost, perhaps, John 14, 6, where Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Once again, I ask of the text, is the kingdom of heaven worth it? Is Jesus, the king of the kingdom, worth it? Now, church, as we conclude, get ready to... to 
come down here to the finish line of the message. There's an urgency put forth in the text. There are many other things in the text that we could talk about. But contextually, I'd like to end with an urgent plea. I believe there's an urgency in which 44, 45, and 46 are given to us. These three verses put forward additional teaching on the subject of the kingdom of heaven. The main line in both of these parables is this. He sold all that he had. He sold all that he had. In order to purchase the field, the man sold it all. In order to buy the one pearl, notice, notice, he doesn't buy more than one. It's one pearl, one pearl of great price. There's but one. This merchant man sold everything. These men left behind everything else for the sake of a treasure, for the sake of one pearl. Turn with me, if you will. Philippians chapter 3. I'd like to begin reading in verse 7. The Apostle Paul, as he's moved by the Spirit, writes these words. But what things were gained to me? By the way, the things that were gained to him are listed in verses 4, 5, and 6. Oh, it's quite a list. Try, quite a trophy case, if you will, of what, what uh, Paul had accomplished. Who he was, his titles, his position. And verse 7 says, but what things were gained to me? These I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed I also count, in other words, in addition to all that stuff listed in 4, 5, and 6, and now verse 80 says, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. And count them as rubbish. That I may gain Christ. And be found in him. We're talking about something that was found. Is there anything greater than to be found? Than to be found by him? And the one who was writing these words, was he not truly found by the Lord Jesus Christ? Knocked off his donkey. Huh? His life turned just like that. Not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. I look also at Corinthians chapter 2 and was just reminded of, you know, this whole idea of what are we pursuing? What are we after? What are we willing to, no doubt, surrender and get rid of? But what are we pursuing at the same time? And Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, he says, For I determined not to know anything among you except, here it is, Here's the one thing. Jesus Christ and him crucified. So what's the plea? What's the action step or steps from the text? First of all, I want to put forth to you, Jesus is worth it all. 
and because he's worth it all? Your right now is to be lived out for him, for his glory, for his pleasure. A recognition, though, of Jesus being worth it all is not complete without addressing sin. It's one thing simply to say, yes, oh, yes, that sounds good, yes, okay, yes. But you see, sin has kept you to this point at a distance from God. God is holy, he is without sin, and yet has in his goodness made a way for you to draw near. He's made a way, in fact, for you to take care of your sins once and for all. No, this does not mean you will stop sinning from this point forward. But it does mean that you can have assurance knowing that God, through the precious blood of His Son Jesus, has completely and sufficiently atoned and paid for your sins. He came to do that, you know. To save his people from their sins. Matthew 1, 21. You see, to speak of Christmas is to speak of the Christ who took upon himself the sins of the world and began a reconciling work of drawing men unto himself. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And the response, in light of Jesus' substitutionary atoning sacrifice at the cross, the response is repentance. What is repentance? I like what one writer says about repentance. He says, it's turning from the sins you love to the holy God you're called to love. It is admitting that you're not God. It is, oh, this is wonderful, tied into the text. It is beginning to value Jesus more than your immediate pleasure. It's giving up those things the Bible calls sin and leaving them to follow Jesus. As you consider your sin this morning and where you stand before this holy God, the urgency is placed before you. I want to impress this upon you before we close. There is an urgency in this text. If you notice, Matthew 13, 44 through 46. It's couched on the front end with an explanation of the parable of the tares. On the back end, there is the parable of the net. Both of these parables share similar themes as well. And they speak to, church, a judgment yet to come. A dividing yet to happen. A furnace of fire contrasted with residence in the kingdom of the Father. The urgency, church, is this. Christ values the kingdom of heaven above all things. And surrounding this teaching is a judgment to come. You see, the kind of living called for in this kingdom of heaven is an absolute surrender to the will of God 
in Christ Jesus. Anything other than this is insufficient. It's incomplete. Anything else comes short, I believe, of what Jesus is teaching. Buy the treasure. Buy the one pearl of great price, church. You see, the writer of this gospel, Matthew, speaks here of something I believe he knew very well. I believe Luke's account of Matthew's story says it best. Luke chapter 5, verse 27. After these things, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi. By the way, that's Matthew. Sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. Verse 28. So he left all rose up and followed him. He left all, he rose up, he followed him. The very one who penned the words of Jesus here in Matthew 13, verses 44 through 46, is the one who knew very well the cost involved in following Jesus. Church, I leave you with the question. Is he worth it all to you? And if so, are you willing to surrender all that you have? All your dreams, all your hopes, all your ambitions to align them with the will of the Father? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I thank you for the truth that you give to us in your word. Oh Lord, I pray for those here as we've heard your word this morning. I pray, Father, that we would today, even yet today, Father, if there are some here today who have not dealt with the sin in their lives, who have been playing a charade, playing a game, doing the church thing. I pray today, Lord, you would awaken them to the urgency of following after your son, Jesus Christ. I thank you that you have already begun that reconciling work through what your son Jesus did at the cross, Calvary. And he awaits even yet today. And he desires that none would perish, but that all would come to repentance. Lord, I pray that today, that Father, if that is the case, there may be some today who would come to repentance and perhaps for the first time, understand that their eyes would be open, their ears would be open to be able to see and understand what it is. And the Bible says that we are a new creation in Christ. And I pray, Father, today that maybe that's true for someone, that they would just surrender all the stuff, surrender all the other things they've been pursuing in this life, that they would find, finally see and find here in the Scripture 
they would come to know this treasure in Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, I pray as well for each one here. Father, as we, many will be spending time with family yet this week. And perhaps in our extended families, perhaps there are some who are lost and without you, Lord. I do pray that we, in light of this treasure that we have, we would be willing to share the treasure. It is good news. It's called the gospel. Father, may we be willing to open our mouth and speak and share this wonderful news. If it's true, Lord, that we have surrendered all to follow Jesus Christ, then I pray it would be also true that in light of that good news, that we would also be willing to speak of this good news. If we have good news, oh Lord, I pray we would not keep it in, but share it. Thank you, Father, for your word. And in light of that judgment to come, oh Lord, there is an urgency here in the text. I pray, Lord, for those who may be asleep, that they would be awakened. They would be on alert to know there is coming a day when you will judge this world in righteousness by the man that you have chosen, the scripture says in Acts 17, this mediator, this man named Jesus. And when it all comes down, Lord, it's going to come down to that relationship with Jesus. What have we done with Jesus? What have we done? What have we said about this man, Jesus? How have we lived in light of Jesus? It's not going to be how much stuff we've accumulated. Oh, Lord, remind us of this each day, of the, of the wonderful, eternal truths. May the temporary which we see in the scripture, it's passing away in lust thereof. May we not attach ourselves and have a firm grip on those things, but instead have a firm grip and embrace Jesus Christ and desire to walk in his way of righteousness. Thank you, Father, for this good word. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.